You are listening to the Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship podcast, which comes from the Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship Church, located in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Today, Pastor John is preaching the sermon, Adam and Eve, from his series, Seeing Jesus in the Stories. The Bible uses several metaphors to describe the relationship between Jesus and his people. We are the sheep, and he is the good shepherd who gives up his life for his sheep. We are his body, and he is the head. Today, we focus on perhaps the sweetest metaphor. He is the bridegroom, and we are his bride. Greetings. I have the privilege now of sharing with you the next message in our series on seeing Jesus in the stories. And this time, the story is the story of Adam and Eve. So um, remember, when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, the teachers of the law of his day, he challenged them. He said, you study the scriptures, that would be the what we call the Old Testament. Those were the scriptures that Jesus had. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you possess eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And so Jesus challenges the contemporaries of his day to understand that the Bible talks about him. And he wants them to understand that he is the source of life. The scriptures are a source of light that are light into the feet. But unless we see Jesus there, unless we see the Son of God, we miss the whole point of and the purpose for the scriptures. And so it's because of that realization and a reminder to find Jesus in the stories that we have um, started this series and continue to work our way through various stories. So again, this first or this story today would almost be probably the first story that we could find Jesus in, although I'm sure there's other parts of creation that are clearly point to him. But this is the creation of, or the story of, the first man and the first woman as they were formed in the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> so we'll pick up the account in Genesis chapter 2. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havala, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. And the name of the second river is the Gihon, and it winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, and it runs along the east side of the Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, 
no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Father in heaven, help us to understand this story a little bit and help us to see the Lord Jesus in it. We thank you for your word, for the scriptures that can testify to give us life. But we thank you most of all that the life is found in the Lord Jesus, and he has made himself clear to us, and he has come and purchased our salvation, and we have life in him. And so may we worship him today as we study more about him. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, let me uh, make a few observations about the story that we've seen so far. Maybe some things that um, are already obvious to you, maybe not. Um, the first one is that this uh, chapter 2 is sort of a detailed accounting of the sixth day. And so if we go back through the seven days of creation, the six days of creation, the seventh day God rested. On the sixth day, the um, first chapter of Genesis tells us that God created um, human beings in his image. And in his image, he created them, male and female, he created them. And so God uh, ascribes all that activity to the sixth day where man and woman were created together and they both bear God's image. And so this chapter two is sort of a back um, a flashback into how are they giving us the details about what the events were around the creation and the formation of um, the man and the woman. <clears throat> and so this is a just to explain, this isn't a different story. It's just a detailed accounting, a detailed accounting of the sixth day. The other thing that I wanted to see is that God has created boundaries from the very beginning. He said you can eat from any tree in the garden, but you cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the presence of boundaries is a good thing from God's perspective. And it, did, it got no curse. There was nothing wrong with the boundaries themselves. And as a matter of fact, the only thing that God ever said that was not good about creation was it is not good for the man to be alone. And so somehow God wanted to teach us and to communicate to us that he created the man first so that he could illustrate that the man was alone and it was not good for him and that he needed a suitable helper. And so this is kind of interesting. God um, certainly didn't surprise God. He planned the whole thing out. But he does this in a certain way, in this particular way, to communicate to us that there is a, a need for and a blessing in finding a person who's a suitable helper. And so that's kind of a neat part of the story for sure. And, and as you, I'm sure you can recognize, this material is used often in, in wedding ceremonies and things like that. <clears throat> the other thing I wanted to point out in the story is that God brought all of the animals to Adam first, and Adam named the animals. And so there's a there's a clear indication of authority. Um, Adam is sort of the in charge of the earth. He's in charge of the garden to take care of it. And he has authority over all the animals of the field and he gives them names. And so the one who names the subordinate is the one who is superior and higher. And so Adam is, is more or less the king of the earth at this time. There aren't any other humans, but he is the king of all of the creation. He's the king of the beast and he names all of those animals and there's also sort of the funny part that 
that as these animals are coming by, um, the implication is that Adam doesn't really know whether he's looking for a suitable helper here or not. And, you know, I've heard it said before that Adam could see, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Lion, and he sees Mr. and Mrs. Bear, and Mr. and Mrs. Hippopotamus, and he never sees Mrs. Adam. And so it's kind of interesting. I'm sure Adam is putting the, um, <clears throat> putting the dots or connecting the dots that he needs somebody to be a friend to him as well. And so it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, there's other parts of the story, the four rivers and, and all that stuff. But I just wanted to um, get beyond that part and get right into the next part. And that is finding Jesus in the story. And so I have uh, four ways that I see Jesus in this story. And I'm sure we could find others maybe. But the first thing I wanted to point out is that <clears throat> as Adam is reigning in his kingdom, we see a king in a righteous state. He's not a sinner yet. Um, Adam has not yet sinned, and he's righteous and a good king, a good benevolent ruler, and he's ruling in his kingdom. God has given him the earth to reign over it and to subdue it and to rule it, and he names the things in it. And so again, the account is the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And so it was a blessing for Adam to work and to take care of the garden. That was his job. He was the king of that land. And then the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. And he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the name the man called each living creature, that was its name. And so the implication here is that not only did uh, <clears throat> Adam name the animals with uh, sounds, but he didn't make up meaningless sounds. They were meaningful. And so the animals were uh, described by their characteristics. They were named in a in a way that made sense. He wasn't just making up a, you know, a, a silly word or silly name. He was he was speaking and and understanding with language and meaning. And so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. That's quite a job, really, when you think about it. And um, especially if we consider that there was a lot of animals that were that are now extinct, that were not extinct at that time, of course. And so there was a lot of animals that, that um, Adam was able to name in a short amount of time. So that's pretty cool how he was a ruler of that. But I want you to see that Jesus functions in his created realm in the same way. Jesus is faithful over all of God's house. In Hebrews chapter 3, we see Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house. And we are his house. We are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and to the hope in which we glory. And so just as Adam was faithful in all of creation in the Garden of Eden and taking care of it, Jesus is faithful in all of God's house. Adam was the ruler over the earth, but Jesus is the ruler of heaven and earth, and he comes and he's faithful in all of God's house. So I guess you could see the fact that um, we see a king ruling in his realm, and Jesus is like unto that. The second way that I see Jesus in the story is that he is one who represents his descendants. And so Adam is going to represent you and I, and Jesus is also going to represent you and I. And so um, Adam is sort of a, a representative, a delegate. He's the one who has the authority to speak on our behalf. He is our pre uh, predecessor, our progenitor. He's the, the head of our race, the head of our species. And so again, what God does with Adam is he gives him a boundary. 
The Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. And so there's this clear command that you, Adam, are not allowed to cross the line. But we know in the next chapter that Satan comes and tempts Eve, and Eve gives the fruit to Adam, and Adam, knowing fully what's going on, he breaks God's law, God's law, and he fails. And so the point I'm trying to make here is that Adam represented us and failed, but Jesus represents us and wins. Remember how Jesus is tempted by Satan in the desert. Um, Adam and Eve are tempted by Satan in the Garden of Eden where there was no want and there was plenty. Jesus is tempted in the desert when there's no support and no food and Jesus is almost starving to death. And after 40 days with no food and Satan tempts him with bread, in a way that's uh, similar to how Satan tempted Eve with the fruit. And again, Jesus stands and does not fall, and he does not fall into sin. And so Adam represents us and fails. And so in Adam, we are all sinners because he did that. We are his descendants. And in the same way, Jesus represents us and wins the battle and fulfills our righteousness. And so if we are born again into his family, if we are his descendant, if we are born from above, born of the Spirit, then we are his descendants and he represents us with perfect righteousness. The Bible picks us up in a number, number of places, but one of them that's really uh, probably the most uh, profound is in the book of uh, Romans chapter 5. And it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through the one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. You see, sin entered the world through Adam, that one man, and death came. But uh, look at this also, all people sin because all sin. So even if you want to argue that I wouldn't have done it, I don't think it's fair for Adam to represent me. Be careful before you say that because we need a representative to be righteousness for us also. But either way, even if you object to the idea that Adam represents us, we have already in our own lives ratified his decision. We were born with a sin nature. Bible makes that clear, but even still, we have acted on it, and we have sinned, so all have sinned. And so to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, before Moses, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. That's a little detail there. But nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. So from Adam all the way to the giving of the Ten Commandments, death was still reigning, even over those who did not break who did not sin by breaking a Ten Commandment, a commandment, right? But as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. So what this is trying to tell us here is that even though um, you didn't break a law, we were still sinners, and death is the wages of sin is death. And so everybody died from Adam on down, just like God promised. On the day you eat thereof, you will die. And so death began when Adam sinned. And this person, Adam, is a pattern of the one to come. Just like Adam caused sin to come into all the race, there is another person who's going to follow that pattern, who's going to do something different. So look at what Paul says here. But the gift, the gift of Jesus, is not like the trespass of Adam. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more... So look at the difference in, in magnitude and in excitement and in, in impact. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So think about it. One sin 
led to the death of many, many people. How bad is that? But now we have something even more great, is that one perfect righteousness and that gift overcomes all of those sins and all of the sins that can, can be um, committed afterwards. And so Jesus' work covers many, many sins, not the cause of them, but is the one who overcomes all those sins. So God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflows to the many. We all earned a sin nature through Adam. And Jesus pays all of our sins and gives us by grace the gift of salvation. And that overflows to the many. So it's even more. Just uh, Paul wants us to understand how much greater Jesus' work is than Adam's. Look at this, he says, Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. So again, the, the magnitude of the scope of the work of righteousness of Jesus was greater than the magnitude and the scope of sin. And he says, For if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more? Will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So if this one man can produce death, and then this person, Jesus, does something that pays all that off, how much more will those who receive this gift, this abundant provision of grace, how much more will we reign in life? So if death reigned from Adam, because of just one sin, how much more will the one act of righteousness, the perfect life, abound more and more so that we reign in life? We don't have to be mono, um, monopolized by death. We are long, no longer free, afraid of death. We're free from the fear of death because Jesus reigns in life through that himself, that one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, the perfect life of Jesus given on the cross, that one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And so the author, Paul here, is trying to help us con compare and contrast Look at the impact of this awful thing, the sin, and all the bad things that happened. But look at even how much more great, how much greater is the impact of the righteousness of the one man, Jesus. And so, yes, Jesus is like Adam, but his representation is a representation that gives us life and abundantly after having sinned. So it overcomes our transgressions, and we are forgiven, and they're paid for, and now we have overflowing life. So it's an amazing thing. Also, uh, another thing about how um, the Adam represents us and then Jesus does is not only then in regard to temptation and sin and then the recovery of sin through Jesus' work on the cross, the forgiveness of sin, but it also, it talks about how our bodies are going to be different. We have a new life. Look at this in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, it is written that the first Adam became a living being. So right, that's a quote from Genesis, right? Um, God breathed into him. He formed him out of the dust of the ground. He breathed into him. He became a living soul. And the last Adam is a life-giving spirit. So the first Adam, that's the man Adam and Adam and Eve, the first one, he is just a living human being. But the last Adam, that's the Lord Jesus coming in that type, he's a life-giving spirit. 
So there's a new kind of life that's even bigger and even more eternal. Uh, certainly not more eternal, is eternal, right? Adam's life was not eternal apart from the Spirit of God. And the spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was the dust of the earth, right? The first man, Adam, he was from the dust. But the second man is from heaven. And so he is of heaven. Jesus is of heaven. And as was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. So you and I are like Adam and Eve. And as the heavenly man, so also those who are of heaven. So we are going to be, when Jesus rose from the dead and he had his heavenly body, his resurrected body, we're going to be like him in the same way that we are already like Adam and Eve. And so that is what Paul is saying about the beautiful part of the resurrection. And just as we have borne the image, we have the image of Adam in our life. We are born, created in God's image, but we have Adam's image. We are his descendants. There's an unbroken chain of life from Adam all the way down to us. And that sinful nature has come through it. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. So now, in Christ, we're going to look more and more like him. We're going to bear his image. We, A thousand years from now, you're going to look at me and see my whole person. I'm going to be the person that I always wanted to be and better than I could have ever imagined. I'll be the perfect version of myself by God's grace and his perfect work. I'll be made complete. I'll see him as he is and I'll be made perfect. And, and what I see now darkly, I'll see perfectly then and my intellect will be clear and my emotions will be balanced and my thinking will be reasonable. My, my, my joy will overflow. I'm going to be like Jesus. You're going to look at me and say, man, you act and look just like Jesus. And that's exactly true. And you will too, because I'll see you there then as well if you are a follower of Jesus. And so just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so we will bear the image of the heavenly man. And so Jesus is our representative, just like Adam is our representative. So it's important to see in the story here that what we're watching when we watch Adam and Eve go through these experiences, they're our representative. But you need to see that they point towards a greater Adam, the Lord Jesus himself. And, and what he goes through, he does on our behalf. So we will never have to experience the consequences of our sin. So Jesus is the one who represents his descendants, just like Adam. All right. The third thing that I see in this story is the creation of a bride. And so this is kind of an interesting thing. Um, in some ways, it can make us feel uncomfortable, especially guys. It sort of feels weird to be perceived as a bride. It seems feminine, right? And so for me to be the bride of Christ sort of has a creepy tone to it. But you just need to understand that the Bible uses several metaphors about how um, we are uh, the relationship to describe our relationship with Jesus. And so one of the metaphors is um, that he is a good shepherd and we're the sheep. And so if you don't like being considered the bride of Christ, how about being a dumb sheep? That's a, a fluffy way to be noisy and smelly and not know where you're going, right? That's what a sheep does. And so the Lord Jesus takes care of us as the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. Another example that the Bible uses to describe our relationship to Jesus is the body, right? We're all members of his body and he is the head of the body, but we are all different parts and each one of us has a function as we we should um, we have we, we might be like the hand or like the eye or like the ear and and Paul takes great length to explain to us that um, every part of the body needs the other part but all of us are connected together and growing into what the head wants us to do 
And so the Lord Jesus is the master of the body. We aren't supposed to act independent. We're not supposed to rebel against other parts of the body. And we're certainly not supposed to rebel against the head. And so that's a, another beautiful metaphor, another way of describing the relationship with ourselves and Jesus. So when we get to heaven, the fact that God used the metaphor of a good shepherd and sheep does not mean that all of us for the rest of eternity in the new heaven and earth are going to walk around on all fours with fur all over. Or not fur, I guess they have wool, right? We're not going to be woolly people forever and ever. And nor are we, when we get to heaven, are we all going to be connected together in one big, um, you know, transformer kind of robot made out of other pieces. And so, you know, I'll look over at you and you're the elbow and I'm the I'm the shoulder piece. And, and you know, say, hey, how's it going? Oh, we got to move. You know, we're not going to be all connected in one body. That's a, a picture to tell us how the relationship is to be understood. And I think it's right to think of it the same way, that this picture of Jesus being the bridegroom and us being his bride doesn't mean that we're all going to be married in some sort of a honeymoon suite, but rather it demonstrates the relationship between him as the one who loves us and lays down his life for us and us as ones who love him back and respond to his love as a good bride responds to the love of the bridegroom. And so um, it's a picture, it's an analogy, and doesn't mean that we're going to have this um, strange relationship for all of eternity. Anyway, that being said, let me just kind of give us the text again about how it describes the creation of the bride for Adam. So again, when Adam, um, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And so the first thing that we see here is that God wants there to be a suitable helper for God, for Adam. And so it's interesting to think that the church, the bride of Christ, is a suitable helper to Jesus. We are a match made in heaven. Have you ever thought of yourself as being loved by God that much, that he perceives you, that Jesus perceives you as the same way that a bridegroom perceives his bride? Um, something that he would consider perfect for him, someone that he would want to spend eternity with, someone that he would love forever and ever? That's how Jesus views us. That's a true statement. And, and believe it or not, you and I are not just um, lucky we are actually suitable. We're pleasing to Jesus. He, he is delighted by our beauty. He wants us to be more and more perfect, and he's working to make us beautiful, but, but we are attractive to him because of his great love for us. You know, we love not because we're lovely, but because he first loved us. And so we were rescued while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us, right? But the point is, is that having um, died for us and having known us as uh, who we are and accepted us in himself, he loves us and he delights to be with us. He can't wait for his wedding day. He can't wait for us to come. And so we are an attractive, suitable partner. We are a soulmate to Jesus. I know that maybe feels hard to believe. Maybe I'm the only one who has struggles with that. But when I remember and, and put into practice the truth that Jesus really loves me like that, it changes everything about how I look at my life. I'm not, I'm not living for myself. I have one who loves me that way. And he views me as suitable, and I want to be suitable. The Bible tells us that anyone who has this hope in them purifies themselves as he is pure. I want to be pure for Jesus because I want to be a suitable helper attracted to him. So, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And so here we have 
a description of, um, I guess you would call it the first anesthesia, right? It's some sort of a deep surgery sleep. And, and so Adam is unconscious, but while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And so here we have a, um, a, a experience by Adam where he goes into the sleep of death, really, you could, you could almost say it like death. It's the first time if he was indeed created in a 24-hour literal day and he was created on the sixth day, then he's never slept before. And so this is his first nap and it's a deep sleep, enough so that God doesn't take on dust and make Eve, but he takes a part of Adam's body and he wounds Adam and he leaves a scar out in his side. And so if you want to say um, Adam is like in the in the um, in the throes of death and his body is pierced his body is cut in the side and as a result the woman is formed out of what is taken from him and so here we have then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man the man said this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And so now the identity of this bride. This bride is not a new separate person. It is a separate person, but it's not a new source of uh, living beings. It wasn't from a different source like dust or from a different amount of grass or something. It was made out of Adam. It was from his own person that this person this Eve person was created and she was made out of him. And so he rightly says, he recognizes what happens. He sees the wound, the scar on his side, and he recognizes who she is. And she is indeed bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. She's, she's part of him. She's from him. And he, and even in the Hebrew, you know how in our, in English we have man and woman, they're, they're related words in the same way in the Hebrew, it's ish and isha. And so she will be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. And so it's a wonderful and beautiful picture of the creation of the bride. So I want us to see that what God is doing when he takes Adam, you can see that in the same way in the Lord Jesus, right? How was Jesus's bride created? He was created, she was created, you and I were created through the sleep of death of Jesus, right? He was dead on the cross. And the soldiers pierced his side to, to prove that he was indeed dead. And there was a, an issue of water and blood, which is a biological proof that the body was no longer living. And because he was pierced for our iniquities and, and he was, um, by his stripes we are healed, because of that work, he buys for us the right to be children of God, children born not of a human descent, or of a, a husband's will, but children born of God, children born of the Spirit. And so we're born again. And the Spirit comes into our lives and gives us new life. And we're, we are made in Jesus's image. And so in a similar way, just like um, there was a suitability between Eve and Adam, God has made us suitable and desirable and attractive to Jesus. And just as it was a sleep of death for, for Adam, it was a sleep of death for, for Jesus. And and he paid a terrible and deep price on our behalf. We understand the full nature of that now, that, that he died for our sins and all that. But there was a, a, a formation was made. And then what's most exciting to me is that 
the body of Christ, the, the bride of Christ is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. How can I say that? Is it because I have um, Jesus's rib in me? No, it's because Jesus's own spirit is in me. You see, I'm born from above. I'm born of his spirit. And his Holy Spirit indwells my life by his miraculous life, of a gift of regeneration. And so you and I are bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. We are spirit of his spirit. We are born and baptized into the one person of Jesus. And so we are part of his family. And we are the bride that he's created for us. And I want to also point out then that this creates a mysterious union. And I don't mean mysterious in the sense of hocus pocus or we could never figure it out. I mean mysterious in that it's unfathomable. It's just so deep and we'll probably never fully get it. But let me let me just point this out. What does what does God say to Adam after he meets his suitable helper, after he meets Eve? The Bible says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. There's a union, there's a unity between Adam and his wife that is mysteriously deep. Somehow they participate in a oneness that goes beyond definition, goes beyond explanation. But then look at how God uses this analogy in our lives. In Ephesians it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so husbands and wives today are supposed to imitate not just Adam and Eve, but they're supposed to imitate Jesus. Jesus' example, Jesus' relationship with the church is a higher and more perfect example for a husband and wife than Adam and Eve would ever be. And so Christ, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so Jesus did that. He laid down his life. He was willing to be pierced for us, and he gives us life. And he did that because he loves. And he says to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And so Jesus made us holy through his work of um, salvation on the cross. But then he also is continuing to work to wash us and to purify us, to sanctify us, to help us understand more and more how much he loves us. And then and to present us to himself as a radiant church. What Jesus is in the business of doing is making you and me holy so that we are even more radiant for him. Without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Jesus is making us that way. And the reality is, is we are actually already that way in our essence. The Bible says elsewhere that we're without fault and free from accusation. Did you know that you and I stand before our bridegroom as the members of his church, as members of the body of Christ, as, as his bride? We are perfect right now in his sight. No wonder he loves us. He has paid it all. And the only thing that's between our our experience and our reality is just our willingness to accept and believe by, uh, believe in it and trust and to live by. And so he's working so that our experience begins to match our reality, that we begin to live more and more without stain or wrinkle. There is hope for us to overcome even the worst addictions, even our worst sins, no matter how uh, hurt we are, no matter how hopeless it seems that we get ourselves in such big trouble and we choose paths that bring such heartache to our families and, and to loved ones and to uh, our own children even. And we bring so much tragedy into the world. There's nothing so hopeless that God's love and Jesus' care doesn't overcome. Jesus is more powerful than our greatest hopelessness. And so he presents us to himself without stain or wrinkle. And he who began that good work will continue to completion. He's going to make us perfect 
and holy and blameless in his sight. So, because Jesus does that with his church, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, people have never hated their own bodies, but they feed and care for it just as Christ does the church. It makes sense for Jesus to take care of us. And look at this again. For we are members of his body. That other metaphor, right? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What's that a quote from? That's a quote from our text in Genesis 2, right? For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so this is a profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ in the church. Everybody thought, you know, just in case you think that this is just a story about husbands and wives, Paul is reminding us, no, no, there's a greater and higher reality of which actually marriage on this earth between a husband and wife is just a picture of the greater reality. It's not the other way around. Jesus is, we are not picturing him, but he is picturing for us how we're supposed to love one another. And this is a profound mystery. You and I are going to be united with Jesus and we're going to be one with him. There's going to be a unity of purpose and spirit. There's going to be a, an intimate relationship that, that makes us one with Jesus himself. Look at how Jesus prays for us. You know, this is an amazing passage in, Genesis, in John chapter 17. Jesus has prayed for himself, and he's, this is the night before he dies, and he's prayed for his disciples that they would be strong. And now he prays for not them alone, but he also prays for those who will believe in me through their message. So Jesus is saying these words, and he's praying for you and I. We are the ones who believe in him through the message that came through the apostles, through the New Testament, all those things. And so he's praying for us. And look at the things he prays, that all of us may be one. So there's unity is that we would be one with each other because we're all part of the same bride. We're all part of the same body. We're all part of the same family. We're all sheep in his pasture, right? We're all members together. But he says, Father, just as you and I are in me and I am in you, right? He wants us to be one. He's praying for you and I. Just like he's saying to the Father, just like you and I are one, I want them to be one. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so Jesus wants his bride. He wants his church. He wants you and I to be in the same kind of relationship, the love that is so close that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus. And Jesus wants to be in you and you in him. And Jesus wants his Father to be in us and us and the Father just the same way. We're all connected in that deep and mysterious unity. And Jesus says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. So Jesus wants his desire for his bride, his desire for you and I today, is that we would be unified with one another and that we would abide in him and be unified with him and his Father because we are a suitable helper to Jesus, because he's laid down his life and paid such a high bride price in order to purchase us for himself, because he is working so hard to make us perfect and to make us blameless in his sight, and because he has given us this ability to be one with him and to be in a relationship with him. And from that, then the whole world will know that you sent me and I've loved them even as you love me. 
How is the world going to know that you and I are believing in the right God? How is the world going to know that Jesus is really the truth? How is the world going to know that this is different than any other religion? The main and most significant characteristic will be that we love one another, that we're united together, and that we're willing to give anything and everything to be a faithful bride to our wonderful bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. Well, I hope this makes sense for you. I hope you see the king reigning in his kingdom. You know, Jesus has the right to name things in our lives, and he has a right to give you a name. The Bible says in Revelation that he's going to give a name to us, and for those of us who overcome, he's going to give us a new name, and he's going to write his own name on us. And, and so if, if Adam had the authority to name the animals, Jesus certainly has the authority to name you and me, and he's going to do so. And he's a king reigning in his kingdom. Are we members of his kingdom? Have we given ourselves over to him as a king? Are we going to be loyal subjects? Are we going to love him as our king? You know, the Lord Jesus represented us. He represented us against Satan, so you and I do not have to stand alone. He represented us against death on the cross, so you and I do not have to fear death, and that we have the assurance of eternal life. Jesus represented us in the resurrection so that you and I will be raised from the dead just like his body was raised from the dead. If he can raise himself, he can certainly raise us. And he, and just like the Lord Jesus paid for all of our sins, he represented us before the holy throne of God and paid the price on the altar for our sins. He represents us and we are totally forgiven. We are just as perfect as Jesus. We have all of his righteousness on our life. And God and Jesus has created for us, uh, he has created us to be his bride. He paid the bride price. He's preparing a place for us that we can come and live with him. And he's going to do all that work. And there's a mysterious union. He wants us to abide in him. He wants us to live for him. He wants us to rest in him. What a privilege to be saved by such a wonderful Savior. I love my bridegroom. I can't wait to be raptured by him in the future. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. May we be his loyal subjects. May we be descendants after his own heart. May we represent him even a fraction as well as he represented us. Father, help us to remember that we are bought with a price. We do not belong to ourselves. Our bodies are not our own. They belong to the Lord Jesus. And help us to experience the wonderful unity we have through the Holy Spirit in the person of Jesus. And Father, with you yourself, that you love us just as much and that we are your gift to your Son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about our church, online resources, and in-person services, our website is the best place to check, wpbiblefellowship.org. In the meantime, keep your eyes on Jesus and may you grow in his grace.